So we are um, especially grateful today that we are able to share in the word of God again this week. Um, Before we get started, I did want to give you the reminder that next week we'll be meeting at 11 a.m. for a joint service with Harvest Community. So we are coming here at 11 a.m. We will do the worship and I'll be preaching. So not 1.30 next week. We're going to have a joint service with Harvest Community Church. So uh, just keep that top of mind. Um, as we've been working through Acts, you know, we're still in Acts, um, but you may notice that we actually skipped a few um, chapters or at least a chapter with some verses attached to it being Acts 16. And the reason that is, is because if you remember a while back, I'd actually already preached Acts 16, and that's a sermon titled Come Consistent in Chaos. So if you want to hear that part of Acts chapter 16, I would say go to the podcast, go look up Victory City Birmingham and listen to it. That was a, an excellent word from the Lord. But today we're actually looking at Acts chapter 17 and looking at what happens when we keep seeing the work of the gospel take hold in the different areas that they're going. And so um, as we begin, you know, I really want you to think about some of the themes that we continue to see in the book of Acts and how those themes are consistently showing up and being applied in the gospel in order so we can understand the immense power of the gospel. And so we're going to look today again at Acts chapter 17, verse 1, and the title of today's sermon is Turning the World Upside Down. Turning the world upside down. Now, um, typically what I do is I will go ahead and listen before I preach any sermon. I'll go and listen to someone else who has preached that sermon, someone I trust to make sure that anything I do or say is consistent with the word of God. And this time I was listening to a John MacArthur sermon and he was mentioning specifically about this text about how great men and women accomplish great things for the Lord. And he mentioned that it always takes an indelible amount of courage for those believers to do anything for God. And he mentioned some names that we all know and remember. But you think about it. The reason that we remember those great names is not just because of the way that they live, but more often the way that they even died. Some of the greatest people we remember, whether it's in the Bible or just in history, is not just that we remember them for their lives, but we remember them for their deaths. We remember the courage that they had. We remember the things that they stood for. And so what we're going to see today, which I hope we've been seeing all throughout our times in Acts, is that the people in the gospel who have the most impact are those who are most willing to die to themselves, but also die for the faith. Those who are willing to risk their lives to have the boldness and the courage to go in enemy territory and declare the truth of God. And that's what we're going to see again. And as we see this every time, I hope you see that the intensity by which Paul and the others are sharing the gospel is ratcheted up higher and higher every time. So let's go to verse number one, Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed from Philos and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, namely Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just another opportunity to share in your word, God. We are always grateful um, just in light of what's happening in our world that we have the freedom and the privilege to gather together. Lord, I pray that, you know, you will show us today that in an upside down world, there is a place for believers to even more so change and, and affect the values and the culture of the world. And we want to learn what that looks like today. God, give us what we need. Give us the courage. Give us the boldness. Give us even the sensitivity that we talked about last week that that we need to be good disciples and ambassadors of you. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Now. We have a reoccurring theme here. We should all be familiar with it at this point. You could actually probably preach the beginning part of this sermon as well as I could. They get to another city. Paul finds another synagogue. Paul goes in to preach the gospel. Some people believe. Some people get angry. They have to leave the city. It is the same theme over and over again. And you can probably say it just as well as I can. But I do think that every time we see this, every time we occur, we incur this, that it is showing us even more and more about the the nature of the impact that the gospel should have on our world. I do think it is um, often unfortunate that most of us would be content just residing as normal, um, unoffensive, barely noticed, half dedicated Christians who are really just trying to get to heaven. The unfortunate reality is that many of us would probably admit it if we had to, that our faith has not had an impact on the world around us, but our faith has only impacted us. And so as we look today, I want us to see one, the power of the gospel. But I want us to look within our own lives and really start to reason, is my faith just having an impact on my life or is my faith actually having an impact on the lives of the people around me? Is my faith having an impact on my family? Is my faith having an impact on the people around me? The reason I ask that question is because this has been the challenge since Jesus sent the disciples out into the world. He said, I am challenging you to go and preach the gospel to everyone, to all ends of the earth. So even from the origination of our faith, the gospel has never been just about what happens introspectively with us, but is about what happens externally through us and through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
If you remember, I preached not too long ago a sermon called Torn Apart. And it talked about how when they went in that city with the gospel, how the city was literally divided in half because some people believed what the disciples had said about the gospel and some of them rejected it. And what we need to remember about that is that if we are card carrying members of the Christian faith, there is a a viable impact that the gospel should be having. Still, I don't know, even understanding that sometimes the gospel will divide people and separate people. I don't know if we really understand how the gospel, which should be good news, should also be dividing people. And in fact, sometimes when I've shared this with other Christian brothers, sometimes on the charismatic side of things, they say that I'm making it up. Like, that's not how the gospel works, that the gospel is only this unifying force. But then you have to remember the words of Jesus, which said, I did not come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And then he says, and I'm coming to divide even families apart from one another. I'm dividing siblings. I'm I'm dividing spouses, even dividing families through the work of the gospel. So if it's supposed to be good news, why is it that the gospel has such divisive effects on people? I think when we understand the true nature of the claims that Jesus actually makes, not the Jesus that we've painted for ourselves, not the one that we've crafted, not this friendly, passive Jesus. But when we understand the Jesus that is declared to us in the Bible, we understand that when anybody has an encounter with this Jesus, it is impossible, impossible to be neutral towards him. It's impossible. In fact, This is what C.S. Lewis had to say. It's a great quote regarding Jesus and the gospel. He said this. He says, if you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus Christ ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him. They were afraid of him and wanted to run away. Or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. There is something about the truth of who the biblical Jesus is that is both beautiful and frightening. That is both freeing and imprisoning. That is both merciful, but also judgmental. And depending on where you find yourself on the line, you will either totally revere this Jesus or you'll totally hate him. How so? What could lead to any of us hate Jesus? Think about what the song just said before I got up. Let all the other names and things and gods and idols in my life fade away until there's only you. See, that is actually a true description of what Jesus does when he comes into our lives. Everything else that gave us meaning, everything else that gave us life, everything that gave us value fades away. But not in a passive way. It's because Jesus comes in and he phases everything that was important to us out. And when all the rubble is cleared and all the massacre has been reason. There's one constant that remains, and it's Jesus. 
That's how Jesus works in our lives. That's why he's such a provocative figure. It is his claims. The claims that Jesus makes about himself. Look at the proclamation of the gospel on the part of Paul. Luke says that he reasoned with them and he expounded the gospel, the text of old, and he actually showed them from the old text, from the Old Testament, that Jesus not only suffered on our behalf and in our place, but rather he was also raised from the dead. That's the issue. That's the critical issue that people have with Jesus. That is the hang up. Jesus couldn't leave well enough alone, could he? He couldn't just be like every other God, like the other makeshifts, where it's like, I'll just come alongside you and I'll be your spiritual God. I'll lead you to the truth, but I'm not the truth. That's not the claim Jesus makes. Jesus says, no, there is no other truth. There is no other way. There is no other path. It is just me. And if you don't go through me, you're not getting to God. And if you realize that the only way I can get to God through him is that I totally surrender who I am, you'll either run away from him or you'll hate him. That's it. He didn't just claim to be God, but because we claim that he was raised from the dead, then we are also claiming that he is God, but he is also Lord. That is how he turns the world upside down. And just so we're clear, if you don't realize this, but to this day, the most provocative name that has ever lived among us is the name of Jesus. You can say God, you can mention every other great prophet, but there is this issue with Jesus. Even the people who say he was just another prophet can almost realize that there's this tangible power behind the name of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Philippians 2 and 8. So an often quoted verse by me, but there's so much truth in it. Philippians 2 and 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a problem. This is a problem for people. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't happen without the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus came to take away the power and the victory that death once had on us by doing just that. The Bible says that God has now exalted him and he has given him a name that is above every other name. Let all the other names fade away. God has placed Jesus at the top of our hierarchical chain. And as a result, every single one of us, every single one of us, 
every single person that is living, every single person that will live and has lived will bow down at the name of Jesus Christ and will finally at once confess, no, there is no other Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. See, that's the problem. (laughs) See, in our text, the accusation that these men made towards the apostles is kind of inaccurate, but not really. Because we live in a democratic republic. We don't often understand the sheer weight of what it means when we say Lord or what it meant when they proclaimed that Jesus was Lord. But I tell you that all of these people who heard it would have known full well the the weight and the breadth of the statement that Jesus is Lord. In Roman society, all citizens had to make their vow to Caesar, every single one of them. If you are a Roman citizen, you had to vow that you were subjecting yourself to the rule of Caesar, whoever that Caesar was at that time. And you would find that in the Greek phrasing, Kyrios Kaiser. You know what that means? Caesar is Lord. The exact term meant that you were essentially selling yourself and your values out to Caesar. Now, how is it that these people, these Jews in particular, could have such a loyalty to Caesar, yet complain about Jesus making the same claims that Caesar's making? Because they knew that if they did not accept Caesar as Lord, it meant absolute death. They knew it. And if anything, I can tell you what they didn't want. They didn't want death. But you see, that is the same reason that they didn't want Jesus to be their Lord either. See, if Jesus is Lord, then yes, it does mean life, life eternal. But it also means for us Death. Death to what or whom? Death to ourselves. It means death to our values, death to our livelihoods. See, the lordship of Caesar, as far as they would have seen it, was completely forced. You just had to accept it. Rejection meant that you no longer live, so you accepted it. But they thought with Jesus, I don't have to accept this. The claim that he's Lord, that's ridiculous. But they also knew that if he was Lord, that that term came with another implication. If there is a Lord, then there most certainly has to be a slave. And they couldn't take it. If you have not been changed by the gospel, then the only news you hear when you hear the gospel is bad. That's all. You only hear that you're totally losing yourself and your identity. And you know what? It's true. You absolutely lose yourself when you come to Christ. And that infuriates people because even if they read between the lines, they can see there is no way I can still be who I was and still find my life in Christ at the same time. But for those who come to him, it's exactly what we need. They know that the burden and the bondage of their own lives and slavery and sin 
And that is why Paul says, I count everything that I have have gained apart from Jesus Christ as rubbish. As nothing. And he really meant fecal matter is what he's saying. He says, everything that I have been, every person that has given me any accolade apart from Jesus Christ is nothing to me. It meant nothing to him in the grand scheme of his salvation. When we come to Christ, he becomes our Lord and we become obedient slaves to his righteousness. When the people here see how joyfully the people of Thessalonica are responding to the gospel, they became enraged. Why? Because when G, when we come to Jesus, he doesn't just relinquish control of our lives from us. But when we come to faith, anything or anyone else that also had control of our lives is destroyed. Any power that we were subjected to prior to our coming to Christ, he totally dissolves the leverage that it has on us. That is the beauty of his work. But that is how Jesus turns the world upside down. This is the beautiful thing about the power of Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus Christ destroys Every agenda, every king, every power, they are all subjected to him. Every great man that has ever lived and died can be found in their tomb except one who was both God and a man. That means that every great man will one day, one day bow to the only great man. One day, every great man, every great leader will confess, no, I was never in control of my life. I was never the Lord of my life. No matter how many people revere me, there is one Lord. And that is in Jesus Christ. Jesus destroys every agenda. God has not only given him a name that is above every name, but he has also placed every single enemy under his feet. So how does he turn the world upside down? Because Jesus challenges every wicked institution in the world that exists. He does. If you understand the work of Jesus, you know that every wicked, evil institution that would use its power to keep any people group in bondage, Jesus destroys it. The men in our text are so enraged at what happens that they go to the house of Jacob, Jason, rather, where they expected them to be. Because they were going to take the apostles out and at best throw them in prison. At worst, they were going to try to get them killed. But when they go to the house of Jason, they don't find them there. They then drag them out and they say that they were challenging the authority of their sovereign by saying that Jesus was Lord and King. The hostility that we experience even now as believers is for the same reason. And knowing this should actually be the thing that helps us out. When we present the gospel to people who do not believe, then they are not just responding to us, but they are responding to their own purported gods. 
Whatever rules as the chief power in the lives of people who do not believe, they will always rush to defend that thing. Why is that? It's the same reason those who defended Caesar's lordship did so. Being in bondage to the rule of Caesar was so common that they had forgotten and they were forced into it. And here they are presented an alternative in Jesus to become his slave of righteousness, to be free and have eternal life. And they say, no, you're challenging the lordship of Caesar and we don't like that. They didn't even realize that they were still in bondage. In psychology, in the world of psychology, they call this syndrome Stockholm Syndrome. It is when you fall in love with the very thing that is oppressing and abusing you. And so often what we see when people hear the gospel, they come to Christ and you present the truth. But you can almost see there is this blind loyalty to the abuse and to the bondage that they already live in in the world. And no matter how effectively we present it. Until Jesus Christ truly reveals himself to them, they will always go back to that which abuses them. Coming to Christ effectively means that everything that we were married to prior to our coming, we must divorce. We must divorce. Look at Hebrews 2 and 8. Hebrews 2 and 8. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by great, the, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Listen, this is the beautiful truth about what we know to be true about the gospel. When we come to faith, we are coming to a God, to a savior, to a Lord who has control of everything. Everything is subjected to him. The world is orchestrated and held together by Jesus Christ. That is what we are told in Hebrews. God has left nothing out of the control of Jesus. And I like what the Hebrew writer says, says we don't even see at present time everything that is in control of Jesus. We won't even know. It says, but even though for a little while he was clothed in human flesh. He was clothed in human flesh so that he could offer salvation to many in the same sinful flesh by which man had been clothed. 
The death of Jesus cemented his permanent position in the world and he is unable to relinquish it. But rather, there is nothing that is strong enough to take the power of Jesus away. That is why we must fully and wholeheartedly reject any notion of Jesus that paints him out as anything else other than our Lord. We must reject it. But we must also understand that when Jesus comes in, he disrupts our lives. He disrupts our values. He gives us new hearts. He gives us new minds. He doesn't just come in and make us comfortable where we are. That's why you have to rethink what you know to be true about the gospel. I mean, really think about it. What do we say about the gospel? We say if you're a drug addict, then he can overcome the habit. We say if you are involved in sexual immorality, then he can remove the desire. We say if it's anything that he is powerful enough to take it away. That's what we say about Jesus. So I want you to understand this. If we say that Jesus is powerful enough to take away our strongest, most deeply rooted desires, if those claims are true, then what we believe about Jesus should not be should not just be true in regards to our sins. But it should also be true in regard to our lives. If Jesus is powerful enough to take away my sins, which are based on a life I live apart from him, guess much more he can do with my life. Think about it. How does Jesus overcome our drug addiction or any addiction that we have? It isn't by just knocking on the door and asking if we'd like to try him. It isn't the, the Jesus that we hear about that just rings the doorbell like, if you let me in, I'll come in. That's not how he works. He busts the door down and he takes over. That's the Jesus that we serve. And he reevaluates and resituates our lives. And he shows us that he can fulfill us more than any drug, that he can satisfy us better than any habit. That he is infinitely better than anything that the world has. But none of those things, power and control, could ever compare to his. God has placed everything in subjection to Jesus. So if I come to him, then my life is no longer my own, but it becomes his. And we'll get up and we'll sing it. My life is not my own. To him I belong. I give myself. Okay. We'll get up and sing it. But are we actually living? No, I have given away my life for the rule and the purposes and the lordship of Jesus Christ. I'm not in control. He's in control. I have been crucified. I've been killed. I've been reckoned as dead so that Jesus Christ can live in me. Nothing less. Nothing less than that will do. While working on this sermon, I was 
really, really thinking and praying about the horrible things that are happening in Afghanistan at this time as the Taliban are taking over that country. I couldn't help but think about it, actually. For the Christians there who remain, though the Taliban have forcefully taken control and pronounced themselves as the power in that country, those believers will not bow to this illegitimate regime. And you know what that means for them? You know what that means for the ones of them who don't make it out? They're dead. They're going to die. We have all these stupid, finite, competing desires, things that we are more loyal to, whether it's our politics, whether it's our agendas, what we're wearing, these famous folks. We will be more loyal to them, and we have people in a country who will not back gene that has told them, we're going to kill you if you don't. You know why they can do that? Because they already died. They've already died to themselves. That is why Jesus says the one who saves his life, you've lost it. You've lost it. But the one who is willing to lose their life for my sake and my glory has gained it eternally. Some of us would think about those people in Afghanistan. How could you be so crazy? This is your life. But see, even in the threat of death, they know that the control that the Taliban has is not even a fraction of that to Jesus. Because they remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The reality is, is that if you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, then it will show up in your life. It will absolutely show up in your life. There is no half doing it. There is no part-time Christianity. You are sold out. There is nothing that the world can do to a people of God who know that God is the supreme authority. That is how the apostles turned the world upside down. We're going to see when we get to Acts chapter 20, when Paul gets ready to go to another city, Luke writes that Paul didn't know what was going to happen to him. He knew that every place that he went, death could be his portion, and ultimately it was. But see, he knew that no threat toward his physical body could compare to the control that Jesus had of both soul and body. And that ultimately death only meant that it was a vehicle, it was a means by which he will reside with Jesus for all of eternity. That's how we turn the world upside down. 
is that we live for him fearlessly, without caution, without abandon, knowing that there is no power in this world that is stronger than that of Jesus. Nothing. And that's why we are not going to make Jesus into this pansy that they make him. We're not going to make him this rosy cheek, just nice. No, Jesus invades, he destroys, he takes over, and he gives us the promise of eternal life. That is the Jesus that we serve. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the great power, the supreme power in Jesus. Lord, the reality is, is that if we walk and live in that truth, God, there is no threat from any place that can be viewed as legitimate. God, as long as we are in right relationship with you, you are the supreme power. God, there is nothing that we fear. There is nothing that can challenge us, nothing that can threaten us that is greater than you. And so, God, if we know that, then that should be the impetus, the driving force to why we surrender our lives to you. God, whether we come to you or not, we are enslaved to something. We are in bondage to something. And God, if I'm going to be a slave to something, I'd rather it be you. Because somehow your slavery means total freedom. And I just want to be with you. God, help us see that it takes courage, it takes boldness, it takes dedication to stand up for the truth. God, we may have our jobs threatened, our income threatened, but you are the supreme ruler. God, let our trust be in nothing else other than you. God, if there's anybody here that's here present today or watching who doesn't know you, God, we just pray that this is the day that you would sovereignly reveal yourself to them. Open, blinded eyes, God, and that you reveal that you are the end all be all. You are the source of everything that we are and have, that eternal life is found in you. We just pray that um, as things seem to deteriorate, even in Afghanistan, God, that you would give those faithful Christians what they need in the face of death, in the face of evil, God. That you will give them comfort, that you will be with them, that you will send them a reminder of the truth that even in the face of death, you are in control. Nobody else, God. And God, even in our own lives, when things don't go our way and we question what's happening, let us know we're not in control of our lives, but you are. It is in the master's name of Jesus Christ's name that we do pray. And everybody said, Amen.